And please turn in your Bibles to our scripture reading, which this morning is taken from John's first letter, 1 John chapter 5. We'll begin reading at verse 18 and read through the end of of the little book, the little letter, uh, to verse 21. 1 John chapter 5, verses 18 to 21. That's our scripture reading this morning. And then our sermon passage is 2 Samuel chapter 5, verses 17 to 25. In 1 John 5, 18 to 21, that's our scripture reading, and then our sermon passage is 2 Samuel 5, verses 17 to 25. Brothers and sisters, this is the Word of God. These are not the words of men. These are the words of the great High King. And you have the great blessing and privilege to hear the Lord speak, to hear Him talk to you. So please give your full attention to God's Word as it is now read. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God and the world, the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true. And we are in Him who is true, in His Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Now turning to 2 Samuel chapter 5, beginning at verse 17 and reading through the end of the chapter, verse 25. When the Philistines heard that David had been anointed king over Israel, all the Philistines went up to search for David. But David heard of it and went down to the stronghold. Now the Philistines had come and spread out in the valley of Rephaim. And David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go up against the Philistines? Will you give them into my hand? And the Lord said to David, Go up, for I will certainly give the Philistines into your hand. And David came to Baal-perazim. And David defeated them there. And he said, The Lord has burst through my enemies before me like a bursting flood. Therefore, the name of that place is called Baal-perazim. And the Philistines left their idols there, and David and his men carried them away. And the Philistines came up yet again and spread out on the valley of Rephaim. And when David inquired of the Lord, he said, You shall not go up. Go around to their rear and come against them opposite the balsam trees. And when you hear the sound of marching in the top of the balsam tree, tops of the balsam trees, then rouse yourself. For then the Lord has gone out before you to strike down the army of the Philistines. And David did as the Lord commanded him and struck down the Philistines from Gabah to Gezer. This ends the reading of God's most holy word. Let us pray. Our gracious God. We are thankful that you are the God who conquers all of your and our enemies. That you restrain them. We thank you, Lord, that you are the God who protects your children. That you love us as a father loves us. That like a mother hen, you gather us around and protect us under your wings. That you are our great and high fortress. You are our stronghold. And we're thankful that this passage so clearly reminds us of all of these truths this morning, which really is the one truth that you are the Most High God who loves your children. 
Lord, we pray that you would teach us from your word. We pray that your word would be used by your spirit to gently correct us, to reprove, reprove us, to even rebuke us. We pray that your word would be used to build us up in our faith, to encourage us in our walk, which sometimes is so arduous. We pray that you would use the preaching of your word now to give us joy in our hearts, knowing that you surround us, that you do indeed protect us, and that you are guiding us to our true home, to our eternal kingdom, which is the kingdom of the Lord. So please bless us now, O Lord, as your word is preached. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Now, I'm not a huge fan of boxing, so I don't want my comments that are about to follow to make you think that somehow I know all about boxing, but because pastors have to know at least a little about a lot of different things, I'm aware of the fact that there's one boxing move, probably the only, the only named move that I'm aware of, called the forgotten arm, in which one boxer delivers a series of punches from one of his arms and causes his opponent to forget the other arm, and then the boxer brings it out from out of the blue, hopefully delivering the kind of blow that will knock the opponent out. Now we really haven't heard much from the Philistines since Saul's and Jonathan's death at the end of 1 Samuel. And chronologically, many years have elapsed since that time and now in our passage this morning. And today in the passage, the Philistines are back at it. And their renewed activity is the result of David becoming not only the king of Judah, but becoming the king of Israel. The Philistines certainly saw this as the threat that it was, and they could not allow David to become the king. They did not want this to materialize. Now, it's very likely that the Philistines were never very far off of David's and his army's radar, but the author of First and Second Samuel has allowed the reader, he's allowed us, to forget about the Philistines so that their reintroduction at this point in the narrative conveys the sense of imminent danger. And it is imminent danger to David and to his men. It's quite truly a, a beautiful literary device. And not literary in the sense of fiction, but the way that the author uses this. He's held the Philistines back in reserve. He's kept us preoccupied, and now by reintroducing us, he, he makes the reader realize that there is a sense of, of imminence, a sense of threat. But whether or not David and his men, or we the readers, have forgotten about the Philistines, our passage this morning shows that God has not. God is ready to defend his people, Israel, from his and their chief enemies, the Philistines, and the, ima the imagery that the author uses for God's defense of Israel is that of a flood rushing down the valley of Rephaim. Now, valleys, of course, are notoriously prone to flooding. We, we, have, we have flooding around here. Flooding in the urban areas in which we live or the suburban areas in which we live is largely due to the development that we have. We're not quite used to the kind of flooding that that happened in valleys, that happened in the arroyos out in New Mexico or parts west in Texas. The violent rushing water that crushes everything before it coming down a valley. Just a few weeks ago, a number of towns situated in the valleys 
in the Appalachian Mountains of western North Carolina were destroyed by flash flooding from a large storm that rolled through. And one of my nephews who lives in that area now, he sent me pictures and, and video, drone footage of the devastation that took place in a matter of minutes as these great and mighty waters rushed down the valleys between mountains. And of course, that same region is facing the prospects of similar flooding from the remnants of Hurricane Ida after it makes landfall in Louisiana, probably even as we speak, 16 years after Hurricane Katrina. And as that storm pushes northeast toward Tennessee and North Carolina. In the case of the Philistines, however, it was a metaphorical flood of God's justice upon the chief enemies of his people. And that brings us to the point, the, the, the thought that I want you to consider as we work our way through the sermon today. God has broken through the power of his and our enemies by pouring out the floodwaters of his wrath upon Jesus Christ as the just judgment for our sins. Again, God has broken through the power of His and our enemies by pouring out the floodwaters of His wrath upon Jesus Christ as the just judgment for our sins. The sermon this morning is divided into three parts. The first part is titled, The Stronghold. The second, Baal Perazim. And the third, From Gabah to Gezer. Again, the stronghold, that's the first part of the sermon. Baal Perazim is the second, and from Gabah to Gezer is the third. Each of these are geographical locations, one within Jerusalem, the others in areas beyond Jerusalem. But let's first look at the first part of the sermon, the stronghold. Now, verse 17, you realize this as you read through it, that it's actually a flashback to the events that took place at the beginning of chapter 5, prior to David's and his men's victory over the Jebusites in Jerusalem, when David was anointed king of Israel. He's still far down to the south, and the word reaches the ears of the Philistines, and they realize that they have to do something about it. David's coronation as king of the United Kingdom of Israel was not only a momentous event for him and for all of the people of Israel, all, the, all of the people of Judah, but for Israel's enemies as well. Because that meant that Israel, under David's rule, was a formidable foe to people such as the Philistines. Now, the last time that the Philistines had fought against Israel, Israel was dealt a vicious defeat. Saul and his sons died, and the Israelite army was routed. But the Philistines knew that David himself was a formidable enemy, and that now as king of both Judah and Israel, he would be nearly invincible against them. The Philistines knew that they appreciated his military abilities. You remember Achish, the king of the Philistine city and region of Gath. He welcomed David into his service. He welcomed David's men to come and serve for him and his army. And you remember that during that time, David plundered other Philistine cities, but he passed it off to Gath as if he had been plundering the towns of the tribe of Judah. And Achish, of course, believed him and saw him as an essential part of his fighting force. The Philistines knew and respected uh, David, and they even feared his fighting abilities. They had not forgotten his defeat of their greatest champion, Goliath, many years earlier, and so they hoped to surprise him by attacking him as soon as possible after his coronation. And so the Philistines heard that David had become king of all Israel, as verse 17 says, 
And they went up in search of David. They went out to try to find him. They did not know where he was. They didn't realize that he had defeated the Jebusites and made Jerusalem his royal city so quickly. And we read at the end of verse 17 that David, when he heard that they were searching for him, went down to the stronghold. Now this stronghold, the most logical location for this stronghold is the one that David and his men had just conquered in the first half of chapter 5 there in Jerusalem itself. And so if we understand that what has happened with the Philistines, it has happened very quickly, then David would not have had time, nor likely the inclination, to depart from Jerusalem and go to a stronghold somewhere else, far to the south. And so the scene here is one of separate events taking place simultaneously. David is conquering the stronghold of Jerusalem, while at the same time the Philistines begin to search for him and try to end his reign over Israel before it can even start. And so in our passage, David goes to the stronghold in Jerusalem, but he doesn't go there to hide out. He doesn't go there out of fear. He doesn't go there for his own safety. He goes there to seek the instruction of the Lord. But before we get to that point in the passage, verse 18 says that the Philistines, obviously having become aware of David's location in Jerusalem, array themselves in the valley of Rephaim which is to the west and in sight of Jerusalem. Now we should take a moment to to point out that verse 17 says that all the Philistines went out in search of David. This was a vast army, at least as large as the one that fought against Saul and his army at Gilboa. They were taking no chances against David and his forces. The Philistines have amassed in the valley of Rephaim, and David has gone to the stronghold, again, not to hide out. He's there to seek the Lord. It's as if he went to a sanctuary to meet with God before there was a temple in Jerusalem. He understood the importance of entering into the Holy of Holies before there was a Holy of Holies. He went to this place where he knew that he would not be disturbed as he beseeched the Lord and sought his will. And he inquired of the Lord there, Verse 19 says, And David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go up against the Philistines? Will you give them into my hand? And the Lord said to David, Go up, for I will certainly give the Philistines into your hand. Now you remember that prior to Saul's last battle, also with the Philistines, he inquired of the Lord, but received no reply. He tried all of the means at his disposal to get the Lord to tell him what he ought to do, and ended up, in the end, going to a medium, the medium of Endor. But God here spoke to David. God had not departed from David. God told David that he would be victorious in battle. And that takes us to the second part of the sermon, Baal Perazim. In verse 20, we're given the name of the location to to which David went and fought the Philistines. And then we're given the reason why the location is given that name. We read there that David went to Baal Perazim and he defeated the Philistines there. His location was somewhere within the valley of Rephaim, probably relatively close to Jerusalem, but we don't know exactly where. But the actual location of this event, where it took place, it isn't important. Instead, it's what took place at that location. But read the passage. Look at, look at these verses. The author of 2 Samuel doesn't really give us any details about the battle. There's no description of David's military might the way that we read in other battles in the Old Testament. 
Instead, we're simply told that David defeated the Philistines in that place. And then we're given a quote of David's in verse 20. The Lord has broken through my enemies before me like a breaking flood. And then the writer adds, therefore, the name of that place is called Baal Perazim. Now, most of your Bibles probably have a footnote that explains the name Baal Perazim, that it means the Lord of breaking through. It could also be translated as master of breaches, not, not britches, but breaches, as in the breaching of a stronghold, as one commentator has it. And David acknowledges that this victory over the Philistines was the Lord's victory and not his. And the imagery that he uses, as we've already noticed, is that of a raging flood that sweeps down the valley of Rephaim, carrying everything that's before it. Now, in this case, the floods, no doubt, are David's very own army, which was, in reality, as expressed by David in his naming of the location, a weapon in the hands of the Lord. But God had used literal floods, rushing floods of water in the past to defeat Israel's enemies. The chief example, of course, being Israel's crossing of the Red Sea out of Egypt. It's helpful for us every so often, even though we all know the story very very well, to rehearse it a little bit, just as the Israelites did of old. The waters of the Red Sea, as the Lord went before the Israelites, as they entered into the Red Sea, the waters became like walls on either side of Israel while they crossed out of Egypt. And they crossed, we read there in Exodus, on dry ground. But when Pharaoh and his army followed them into the Red Sea, the the chariot's wheels got caught up in the mud of the, 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 the bottom of the Red Sea. And these great walls of water came crashing back down on them, crushing the Egyptians. Now David, quite likely, may have been deliberately evoking this event in Israel's history, seeking to draw a comparison between God's deliverance of Israel from Egypt, then with God's deliverance of Egypt from the Philistines in the battle described here. And the place name that he gave it, Baal-perazim, it would remind David and his people of the great victory that not David accomplished, but the Lord accomplished. Now verse 21 contains an interesting historical note that we easily could rush by without much thought. And the Philistines left their idols there, and David and his men carried them away. If you're like me, the question is, what did they do with those idols? Start having flashbacks to what happened in the book of Joshua, chapter 6, the sin of, of uh, at Ai, the battle there, when Achan and his family took the silver, took the idols, they took them away, and the Lord punished Israel for it. The author never tells us what happens. It's possible, if not probable, that David and his men destroyed those idols. But it's also possible that some of the men kept the idols. Now David knew that idols were not to be tolerated in Israel's camp. But this is one of many instances in Scripture where the author gives the history of Israel without commenting on whether or not it's right or wrong, what uh, the actors, the people who are taking the action in history have done. David and his men knew very well, as we do, that idolatry is forbidden by God. Our scripture reading this morning from 1 John chapter 5 contained a specific command. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Paul said the same thing in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 verse 14. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. And these commandments in the New Testament are nothing new. God again and again warns his people in the Old Testament to stay away from idols. He orders his kings to tear down the high places where 
the Canaanites, the Philistines would worship their idols. Now personally, I would like to read at the end of verse 21 that after they had carried the Philistines' idols away, they smashed them to bits. Does the fact that it isn't mentioned mean that they don't destroy them, but made use of them? Well, here's something that I think we need a practice, a hermeneutic that we need to put into play, that we need to employ. In the absence of any further revelation in the Scriptures about this, the most charitable reading of it, which we have the duty to do both with our historical brothers and sisters in history, those who are written about, talked about in Scripture, but also our brothers and sisters here in life as we work with one another. We have to give a charitable reading of what other people are doing in the absence of any other information. And so the most charitable reading is that the idols were carried away and destroyed so that no one would be able to make use of them. And if that's the case, why did the author even bother to mention it? Why did he bring it up? I think here's why. His highlighting of the idols calls to mind how the Israelites used the Ark of the Covenant in battle early, early on in 1 Samuel. The Philistines no doubt carried their idols into battle, believing that their idols would give them victory over Israel. That's why they had them there. They were their household gods. They were bringing them with them. They hoped that they would give them power and victory over their great enemy, Israel. And that is the same way of thinking that the Israelites engaged in back in 1 Samuel chapter 4. They treated the Ark of the Covenant the same way. The Israelites carried it into battle, hoping that it would ensure their victory against the Philistines, and they were defeated, and the Philistines captured the Ark. Now I think, I could be wrong, I think that the author of 2 Samuel is drawing a big equal sign between the Israelites of 1 Samuel 4 and the Philistines of our passage. He wants the Israelites to see that what their forefathers did back in 1 Samuel chapter 4 is no different than what the Philistines were doing in 2 Samuel chapter 5 and bringing their household idols to battle, hoping for the victory. The Philistines' use of their idols in battle is, and this description of it is intended to remind us of Israel's use of the ark. And the evidence of this, the reason, the basis that I have for this interpretation is that in the very next passage in chapter 6 we have the description of the Ark of the Covenant being brought to Jerusalem. It had stayed in the house of Abinadab all of those years in Kiriath-Jerim outside of Israel outside of Jerusalem. And finally it makes its return to Israel in 1 Samuel chapter 6 and 7. God gave David and his men the victory in the valley of Rephaim. He broke through the enemies before David like a breaking flood. He showed once again that the battle belongs to him and not to David, not to us. And that brings us to the final section of the sermon from Gabah to Gezer. The Israelites, by the work of the Lord, had won the battle. But the war was not over. Verse 22 says, And the Philistines came up yet again and spread out in the valley of Rephaim. Remember, it's all of the Philistines. They're all there. It's a massive army. And David, we read in verse 23, once again inquired of Yahweh. 
We're not given the contents of what David asked of the Lord. But this time God told David not to go up. The first time he says, go up, I will certainly, certainly surely give the, the Philistines into your hand. This time he says, don't go up. God tells them to go around to the rear of the Philistines' encampment in the valley and to come against them opposite the balsam trees. And God further instructs David in verse 24, And when you hear the sound of marching in the tops of the balsam trees, then rouse yourself. For then the Lord has gone out before you to strike down the army of the Philistines. Now God here is hinting at the fact that there are more than just earthly forces doing battle here. It's not just physical armies duking it out on the battlefield that was the valley of Rephaim. David won't actually see it, but he will hear the sound of a host marching in the treetops. Now, that phrase can be taken in one of two ways. The treetops might echo down to David and his men the sound of marching in the valley of Rephaim, or it could mean that there is marching in the treetops themselves as a heavenly host moves over their heads. Now that might be far-fetched sounding to some. But 2 Kings 6 gives us, gives us a glimpse of the heavenly army of the Lord protecting His people. In that passage, which some of you may know as the chariots of fire passage, Syria had been warning, uh, warring against Israel, and the king of Syria grew tired of the prophet Elisha constantly giving Israel king, Israel's kings all of the intel. Elisha's giving Israel's king information about where the Syrians are, where the king is, and they keep going in to attack them. And the king of Syria is getting tired of it. And after several times of Israel defeating Syria in battle because of the information that Elisha was providing to his king, the king of Syria decided to take the battle to Elisha himself. He sent spies out. They found out where Elisha was. They came back and reported to him. And so the Syrian king sent his army to surround Elisha's house in Dothan. Elisha's servant woke up one morning and went outside and he saw a great army, uh, enemy hosts surrounding their house. And he went back in to tell Elisha, Alas, my master, what shall we do? And Elisha immediately prayed that God would open the eyes of his servant. And when the man looked up, behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. Two men in this house, a vast enemy army arrayed around them, and God opens the eyes of this servant to see that God himself has his own army encircling Elisha and his servant. There is a spiritual reality that modern materialists reject out of hand because only the material world exists. So it's not possible for spiritual things to exist too. It can't possibly be the case that there's a spiritual reality that we rarely have glimpses of in this life. But verse 24 hints at what Elisha's servant saw. The heavenly host of the Lord protecting his people. We read there that the Lord went out before David and his men while they were being concealed in the balsam trees and David had a decisive victory over the Philistines from Gabah to Gezer. As Joyce Baldwin writes in her commentary on 2 Samuel, so decisive was this battle that from this time on the Philistines ceased to be a serious menace to Israel. They weren't completely obliterated, they weren't totally wiped off of the face of the earth, but they no longer really bothered Israel much anymore. They harassed them on occasion. But the head of the snake was cut off. The Philistines no longer were a threat to God's people. That's something for us to remember too. 
We forget sometimes that the Lord goes to war for his people in a spiritual sense. He's protecting you and me. And he does protect us, not only from spiritual harm, but physical harm as well. He has a vast army with chariots of fire encircling us. He has his heavenly host taking care of us. We can take great comfort from this. If we start thinking about the spiritual aspect of the reality in which we live, the world in which we live, a lot of times we begin to focus on on Satan and on his demons and on those those spirits that try to do us harm. And rarely do we remember the fact that the Lord Jesus Christ is the king of the heavenly host. All of those angels who are constantly rushing to the defense and the aid of his people. Now our passage this morning contains two more instances and a long string of them in which God goes before his people, protecting them, fighting for them, delivering them from their worst enemies. But this passage, as we've already made note of, it it also hints at a spiritual reality too. And it is the spiritual battles that are far more definitive and significant than the physical ones. None more so than Jesus Christ's victory over the spiritual powers and principalities, over sin and death, over the devil himself. Now at first, this victory, what we regard as a victory, at first it seemed like defeat. And most of the disciples were utterly disheartened by what they saw when Jesus died on the cross. He was utterly humiliated. He was put to death by the Romans, the enemies of God's people. He was hung on that cross in a cursed tree. He suffered the unfathomable, unfathomable wrath of his father, but not because of anything that he had ever done. He suffered because he willingly put himself in our place. And the cup of God's wrath poured out like a flood upon the head of his beloved son was meant for you and for me. But Jesus took it all upon himself by taking our sins and making our sins his own. All your sins, all my sins, he took upon himself. They were imputed to him when he became the sacrifice for us on the cross. But all of that, the humiliation, the suffering, his death, an excruciating one on a cross, all of it would have been meaningless were it not for the events on the morning of the first day of the week. When Jesus the Christ breached the bonds of death, breaking through the grave, leading the way for us to break through sin and death. It's as if he himself was the flood that broke the stone that barred the opening of his own tomb. And Jesus Christ has broken through the stone that barred us as well. He has gone before us. He has defeated all of our enemies. They were his enemies too. And while they might continue to harass us for a little while, our enemies will never have over us the power that they once did. We have been set free because Jesus Christ broke free and then has broken us free. And that is good news, brothers and sisters. That is the good news. You have the victory in Jesus Christ. If you don't believe this, If you don't trust in Jesus Christ, all that you need to do is to repent of your sins and believe 
that He is the Christ who died for your sins and was raised back to life from the dead. That is the good news. And the wonderful thing about it all, brothers and sisters, is that the requirements for you and me are minimal. Jesus Christ has done all the work. God's Spirit does the work in you. And if you believe in Him, you have been delivered. Amen. Let us pray. Our gracious and most holy God, we are thankful to You that we have not had to suffer and that we who are in Christ will not have to suffer the outpouring of Your wrath for our sins. But Lord, we remember that Jesus Christ did. That He suffered it all. That He paid it all. That He endured hell for us. Oh Lord, we pray that by Your Spirit we would be filled with gratitude for the work of Jesus Christ on our behalf. We pray that we would be filled with joy. That we would be filled with thankfulness. That we would be filled as a result of all of these things with gentleness and peace and meekness and humility and compassion for others. We pray that your spirit would guide us as we continue on in this world. Being harassed, being battered about, but never being destroyed. Because you have given us the victory in Jesus Christ. We pray this all in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.